Bible or a Bible app, you'll want to go to the book of Ezekiel. Book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Crush your Bible open. I'm not anywhere near the cord, Joe. <laughs> Uh, if you crack your Bible open halfway through and start paging on the right, eventually you'll come across Ezekiel, one of the Old Testament prophets. We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 40. Chapter 40. <clears throat> okay, it's really funny to watch people in the back scramble when they hear hissing sound. Because if you're a if you're a tech minion, that's like the worst sound ever. See what happens. They're all going. I don't know what's going on. Okay, uh, let me try going back here. This is no. I'm good. See, I go back here. It's fine. See, it's the speakers. Oh my gosh. You know I talk with my hands. How am I going to do this? This is going to be fun. Yeah, it is. Huh? Yeah. Could, um, where's the stand? Let's do that. This is the beautiful part about being a mobile church, is that um, you improvise a lot. Thank you. <clears throat> Duct tape and bailing twine. So... Can you all hear me? Okay, there we go. Thanks. We'll see how long this lasts, shall we? Okay, so here we are in the book of Ezekiel. Um, we're going to be talking about this. Ancient Israel geographically sits between two superpowers, at least in that day and age. In the southern part was Egypt, and it was a superpower largely because of its economics. I got it. Yeah, thank you. Largely because of its economics, the Nile River would flood, and so they always had food. And so it was a, a, a big deal. It was a big source of income for them, and it was not only an economic superpower, but it was also a, a military one. And over a period of time, another superpower arose north of Israel called Babylon. You may have heard of this. And in 586 B.C., or what we call before Christian era, Babylon swept Israel away. It sacked the city of Jerusalem, the capital. And more importantly, it destroyed the temple where God dwelt. Now, the implications of this very act cannot be understated at all. The... The temple in Jerusalem was actually built more like a palace than it was a religious center. Why? Because it was the throne room of God. God himself would rule over Israel in some way, shape, or form from that place. And so when it was destroyed, it actually cut to the very identity of the Israelite people. Because if our temple has fallen... Where would God live? And what would that say about our God versus someone else's God, like the Babylonians? Can you see that? 
So it's an identity issue for them. This is huge. Now, some of the writers of the, uh, of the Old Testament, who we call prophets, indicated that there was a reason for this. There was a reason why the city was sacked and the temple was destroyed. It was because that Israel had been unfaithful. They had broken the relationship that they had with God, one that they had for a thousand years. And they warned Israel. Periodically, God would speak to his prophets and say, come back, be a part of the relationship that we created a long time ago. Don't forsake this. Don't walk away from it. This is too important. Don't leave it. And time and time again, God is an incredibly patient God. Amen? Yeah, thank goodness. That's right. So they'd call him back to God. And, and so in Ezekiel, the prophet himself writes this. Next slide. Donna's over in the room. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, there had falls. Stop right there for a second. I know it seems a little bit odd. But see, the Babylonians had this practice. They forced resettlement. So they would come into an area, they would take it over because they had more armies and better technology and bigger guns and all that kind of thing. wasn't really guns. But they ended up taking over. And, and what they would do is they would take large groups of the population from where they lived and move them to another part of the empire. This is a great way to manage things like insurrection. Because you're disconnected from that place where you were. You, you're, you're not so inclined to fight for it, right? You're too busy trying to figure out, okay, what's the language here? How am I going to buy groceries? Those are the kinds of things that happen when you move to another part of the empire. Do you see that? And so scholars will call this period of time in, in Israelite history the Babylonian exile. You have a large group of people who are unfamiliar with the territory. They are disconnected from everything that is familiar to them, and they got a lot of unanswered questions. You know, it strikes me, I meet people every day who are in their own sort of exile. It could be a season of life, it could be a whole number of reasons, but they're in unfamiliar territory, they're trying to navigate something they don't fully understand. They're disconnected from friends or family or from even things that, that, that they've known at one point and now it's all different and, and there's a lot of unanswered questions. Sometimes God uses exile to get our attention. I want you to hear that again because it's uncomfortable. But sometimes God uses exile to get our attention. Jesus was talking to a woman <clears throat> at a well, and one of the things that he said in his conversation is that there will be a time when you will worship in spirit and in truth. Now, normally speaking, when we read this passage, we think in terms of the absolute truth of God. Yes, that's true. However, I think Jesus is also talking about the truth and the reality of our own circumstances. That when you actually worship, when you walk into a place of worship and you're going to worship God, you are very aware of the condition of your own soul. 
the circumstances that you're in. So we like to think in terms of, you know, this big, broad understanding of absolute truth. And I think Jesus was talking very practically about the truth of where your own heart is. Sometimes God has to use exile to get our attention, to get us to that point of truth. And it's uncomfortable. So what's your exile? What's yours? Maybe there's this persistent problem that uh, you just can't get away from. Habitual sin. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, my five-year-old, Eliana, <clears throat> likes to play with blocks, and she likes to build towers. And, of course, knock them over, right? Because that's why you build things, right? But we have this uh, hearth in front of our fireplace and the, the bricks are a little bit uneven and so she's trying to build this tower and it would get to a certain point and it would fall over. And when it did, the first time around it was like, oh. The second time there was a little more frustration in her voice. By the fifth time it was like, oh, not again. Some of you know my daughter, you can hear this in her voice, right? All frustrated. And I said, honey, the truth is, didn't even realize I was using the word, but the truth is, it's uneven. You have to shift the base over, and then you can go taller. Maybe you have an uneven surface, and you're not realizing that the thing that you're building is always going to fall over, because God has to use exile to get our attention about the truth of the situation. You know, maybe your situation is painful, and there's just no answers, and you can't figure out why. And there's a hundred reasons why you might have an exile or what you're experiencing. And it's not the fact that God causes the exile. He may cause the exile. He may not cause the exile. The point is don't speculate because that's not the issue. The issue is what are you going to do with your exile? Did you hear me? What is it that you're going to do with the exile that you're in? What's your response going to be? Well, there's some predictable reactions, actually. And, and just a couple of them that cross my mind. You might be able to think of more, but here are, here are two or three that, that make the most sense to me, the ones that I see over and over. Here's the first one. It's to fight. Situation happens, an event occurs in your life, and the first thing is that anger just kind of comes from nowhere, and you say, you can't make me. Some of you are smiling. The reaction here is Rebellion. It's rebellion that comes in your, in your soul, that this exile, I'm going to rebel against it. And I need to tell you that this almost always leads to a posture of bitterness. And bitterness is a downward spiral that will eat you from the inside out. Always. The other option... <clears throat> typical response or reaction to, to an, an exile is to flee, fight or flight, right? Whatever happens, the event, and we feel this pain, and the first thing it goes, it's not my fault, not my fault. And of course, this is the reaction of blame. It's somebody else's fault. They did this to me. And this almost always leads to a posture a victimhood. And again, there's this downward spiral that happens of constant complaint. You know people like that? I know I do. 
chances are we know people that are so bitter, bitter inside of them that they don't even use sarcasm anymore. They've moved to cynicism. And they're in that place of cynicism, and, and it doesn't matter. They're suspicious of everybody and everything. And that's the filter they go through because, hey, man, somebody did something to me before. It's going to happen again. I know it, and I'm going to head it off at the pass. And, and there's just this anger and bitterness, and they wear it on their face, and they just tensed up. And, and of course, victims, they just seem like they're stuck on whatever it was that happened to them, and there's really no desire to change. It's easier to complain. Now, chances are you know somebody who's gone through these types of reactions, but the chances are also equally true that you probably have reacted like this. Full disclosure, I know that I have. I'm prepping for this thing, and I'm reading through this stuff, and I'm thinking about it on my own, and I thought, you know what, David, you got some bitterness you got some places where you've been a victim. And you're bringing it back up over and over and over. And your wife is tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of hearing about it. Fortunately, there's a third option. There is another option here. It's called flow. At least that's what I'm calling it. You might call it something else. But flow is when you experience something and there is an emotion. Emotions, by the way, are not something you get rid of. God gave them to you for a reason. They're trying to help you understand what's, what's happening in life and folding in front of you. Emotions are from God and therefore they are good if we use them correctly. So the emotion happens after the event. It always does because your brain is wired that way. It sends a signal from your eyes or your ears or for the rest of parts of your body. It travels through a part of your brain that hits the emotional response before it hits to your logic. Did you know that? It's physiological. This is why children act the way they do. Some people haven't figured out. <laughs> There's more to it. Leave the amygdala. Go to the frontal cortex. But when you flow, the emotion happens, and you immediately hit pause. And the words that you use, what can I do with this? What can I do with this? Because a lot of times things will happen to us, and they it just it's bad, and we know it's bad. But the point is, what are you going to do with it? And this is a reaction of responsibility. And responsibility will lead to a posture of learning. Does that make sense? And what happens is instead of this downward spiral, it's an upward spiral. It's when we look at God and we say to him, this stinks, I don't want to be here, but God, make it count for something. Don't let me just feel this anxiety, this fear, this anger, this victimhood. Don't let me just feel that. Make it count for something. Now, back to Ezekiel, chapter 40. <clears throat> he doesn't 
stop with the exile. He actually moves on in the 25th year of our exile. At the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there to Jerusalem, the city that fell. Okay, He took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. Isn't that interesting? Ezekiel saw the fall of the city of Jerusalem. He saw how it was ransacked. He saw how it was destroyed. And now he has a vision of something completely different. And for the next, get this, six chapters, we get a detailed account of how God rebuilt the temple. Now remember, the temple was the source of identity for all of Israel at one point. This, this is a big deal. For that not to be there, what, where will God dwell? And God's like, no, I got this. I'm going to rebuild it. And in very precise, exacting details, how many cubits the, the gates are going to be. A little model of what they think it looks like. <clears throat> it's astonishing, the level of detail. Please understand, God is giving back Israel an identity. Do you see? Yes, that was taken away, but that's not the end of the story. And so here in Ezekiel, God gave an exiled people hope. Thrive Church, we have four big ideas. A filter, so to speak, of things that we want to make sure that we're, we're talking about. Here they are. Love, forgiveness, healing, and hope. The older I get, I need to be honest with you, if the conversation doesn't include these things, I'm not really interested in having that conversation. I'm just going to tell you. I want to know what God wants to do. I want to be part of these kinds of things because the world desperately needs this. People dream about this. They are desperate for it. They are disillusioned with everything else. Do we understand that? Thrive Church is for dreamers, the disillusioned, and the desperate. Why? Because we traffic in things like love and forgiveness and healing and in hope. And I hope that that comes through every single time we gather together. So whatever your exile is today, I'm here to tell you, there's hope. Today. Not tomorrow, today, there's hope. Church, do we believe that? If we don't, let's go home. Now, this weekend we've had some pretty amazing guests hang out with us. And uh, they've been teaching us um, about worship. And I want to point out something fascinating in Ezekiel chapter 46. Remember I said there's six chapters of detail. So if you head over to Ezekiel 46, I want you to see this. Is it up? Yeah, there it is on the screen. When the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed festivals, whoever enters by the north gate to worship is to go out the south gate. And whoever enters by the south gate is to go out the north gate. No one is to return through the gate by which they entered, but each is to go out the opposite gate. So if you come in one, you go out the other. Fortunately, there's only two gates. Why? Why? Because worship changes us. 
This is a physical reminder that worship changes us. At least, it can. If we have a healthy understanding of what worship really is. So, if you get nothing else from what I say today, if you walk out of here and you don't have anything else written on the back side of your, of your paper, here's the one thing I want you to write down. It's right here. Worship is about what you bring. Worship is about what you bring. Do we receive something? Of course we receive something, but that's not the point. The point is that you bring, bring something. There is certainly praise and thanksgiving. Yes, we need to bring that to God, but also I want you to understand something much more profound when we bring our hurt and our brokenness, when we bring our exile We are also worshiping. Because my definition of worship is very simple. It is ascribing worth or value to God. Steve made this really interesting observation yesterday that when you love someone, you you bring them what they like. I, that, that one took a cup of coffee, by the way. I had to think about that one. So I was thinking about this, and we just celebrated Valentine's Day not too long ago, and so I had Lisa and the girls at a, a little place downtown called Pink Tetzel. Have any of you been there? Okay, that place is crazy, right? It's like, I don't know, French something on steroids. But it's this really cool candy shop with all kinds of cupcakes and cake pops, and oh my gosh, I think I gained 15 pounds walking across the threshold. But it was really cool. And, and so for Valentine's Day, I wanted to get, get my girls, all three of them, something from Pink Tetzel. You know, we were in there, and yeah, we got cupcakes. And I'm like, yeah, get them a little bag of candy. Now, if I were choosing the candy, it would be really easy. I would go to the milk chocolate covered nuts. That's what I like. Okay? So if you're looking for something for me, milk chocolate covered nuts, that's a hint, kids. Write this down. No. But that's an easy thing for me. Here's the thing. My, my girls typically like fruity candy. I don't know why. I prayed for them. Just that's what they like. They like fruity candy. And so I went and I got them fruity candy. I brought them what they like. Here's the thing that God likes. Are you ready for this? Does he like praise and thanksgiving? Of course. But God likes a challenge. And sometimes when we take our pain we bring it before God, what we're ultimately saying is, God, only you can do something with this mess. And God says, that's exactly where I want you to be. Do you understand, do we understand that God wants to prove to you that he's real? And sometimes it takes that mess, that nonsense, that exile that he's using to get our attention for us to bring it to him so that we understand that he's real. Are you with me? Are you tracking with me? Nod your head so I know you're still awake. Okay, praise God. Here we go. When we bring that pain, when we bring that exile, and we bring it before God, we're saying to him, only you can do this, and that makes you valuable. You're worth the sacrifice. Here's what it also means, because worship is also about sacrifice. We're bringing something to him. God, I'm going to give up the rebellion. God, I'm going to give up the blame. 
I'm going to take responsibility for what I can take responsibility, and you and I are going to partner together, and I'm going to become more of the person that you want me to be. How is that not worship? Come on. You with me? It's a beautiful, beautiful picture that we get. Worship changes us. How can it not? Because we give up all of the junk, the nonsense, all your mess. And you got mess. I know you people. You live in a fallen and broken world. How on earth do you not have mess in this life? And so option three, this idea of flowing, taking responsibility, and this posture of learning is really the redemptive one. He's the God of the redeemed. It's so true. Option three gives us growth and opportunity to worship, but also become the kind of people that God wants us to be. Mm. So today, I want to give you an opportunity to deal in spirit and in truth. And just to say right up front, folks, what's your exile? Where in your own life and the condition of your own heart are you hanging on to things like rebellion and blame and we gather together at least for now once a month to worship and what did you bring today because whatever you brought in the door is okay praise and thanksgiving yeah love that (laughs) but what else God wants that too And if you haven't heard that, I'm telling you. Because that's the kind of love God has for us. He wants to take all of that, do something with it.